Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleague Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. And we're here with our good pal James Med. Hello, Barney. Who's a local? <laughs> who's a who's a denizen of uh, Hammersmith, Brackenbury Village? You haven't had to come very far, have you? I James? haven't. I hope that's not the only reason I'm here, though. <laughs> You've really brave no, the you elements. Take what you can. It when certainly you're a isn't the only element. No, uh, James is one of our writers and someone who has written about pop music and pop culture for a good number of years, a fair number Plenty, of years, yes. less years than I have, but some years for the likes of Esquire and The Word and GQ and you know quite impressive publications, not just music magazines. So welcome, James. It's really nice thank to you have you much. here. Thank, thank you for braving a torrential downpour to get here. So I'm just going to start by asking you how you came to write about music in the first place. I mean, I was a, like any music journalist. I was obsessed from sort of age of six. Good. So you're outing yourself as obsessed. Absolutely. That's good. Great. Yes. Brilliant. <laughs> but I spent a long time sort of dabbling in amateur magazines and I had a job doing gig listings and it took me a long time to actually focus enough to actually bombard someone. I guess I started writing about music in any significant way at Esquire where there was a sort of a I inveigled the slot, a monthly slot, which was usually a page and then occasionally there'd be interviews and I managed to, to make that mine, I think. Were you able to pretty much determine what you wrote about? Pretty much. I mean, there, it's quite weird, because it's not like a music magazine. You do have to think of whoever their audience is, which is someone who listens to much less music than, say, uh, Q or Mojo or whatever reader. You know, you're thinking of the one CD a month guy. Yeah. So you have to get either someone who's huge or someone who's very new yes. and is about to be someone they can show off about. That said, I did manage to inveigle some people I liked. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, quite badly. I think I remember interviewing Liz Fair sometime after. That was a thing I should have been doing, really. Well, one of the pieces that <laughs> we've selected by you for the homepage is Joanna Newsom, who, mm. you know, is, a, is someone I'm a huge fan of, but an, an acquired taste, I would imagine, even for uh, readers of dedicated music magazines. But you managed to get her into a squire. Yeah, I think they thought that she was one of the ones... And I think she did. She did have a moment where she crossed over as a good name to drop yeah. in the pub. Yeah. It's, a, it's a terrible thing at men's <laughs> magazines. You do start talking about what are they talking about in the pub. Johanna Newsom, uh, the new pub role. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think she's absolutely extraordinary. So do um, I. So yeah. was, I mean, I put, would have probably pushed for that pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I'm, I, I, I like the piece and I like the references that you bring into that, you know, that whole idea of sort of very eccentric female performers from Kate Bush to Björk and you put her in that company i think rightly yeah i guess so i mean and that's certainly a way of i mean you with those pieces you do i, I guess you do with any new band piece you've got to place someone yeah i mean that's how i yeah. think am i going to like this i'm gonna like it because i like those people but yeah i think actually i mean i like her far more than either of those two with, <laughs> yes. when i look back sure, I mean, I, sure. I, I, enduringly i yeah. remember i saw her actually for that first album she played the 12 bar Yes. enormous heart. Did you see? That, no, I didn't. But that was, that like was the first London performance, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. one of those mesmerising gigs.
very differently, the main piece is an Esquire piece. It's a, a quite a long interview with Morrissey that you did in his adopted Los Angeles. Yeah. It's Bre- really interesting. <laughs> Brexiteer Morrissey. Well, I know, it's in really interesting. To- <laughs> Although all the signs were there. I read yeah. it last night. Yeah. Of course. You can really see it. Yeah. Yeah. The, what did the, you make of him? I really liked him. You did? Yeah. Shame that, on you. That, that's, I know. That's, 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 that's a real I, pity, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I was old enough to... To know better. Know, well, to know that, that I was having a crush, you know. That I, d- I mean, you don't believe everything Morrissey says unless you're 17, do you? Mm. I mean, by the time you're even 27, even if you're sort of music obsessive, I didn't believe. But, but it's a really... It, it w- seemed like a really lovely, beautiful, innocent worldview. It was a world. Mm-hmm. That he had constructed. Of Lovely Coronation and beautiful Street. and innocent are not words. Well, that they we, are not we, now, are they? I mean, he was. Little... I, I remember the question I, I asked yeah. him this question, which just came up at the time Have you ever compromised? And he said, No, I don't think I have. Yes. Do you? Would you say I have? Yeah. yeah. He's I, so which he always does that. <laughs> I mean, the kind of semi flirtatious, semi wry thing. But I only I, ever he, has, he didn't him. compromise, and that's really. Well, how we've come to this. Well, I, I, well, you're absolutely right. I mean, I only ever interviewed him once, which is right at the beginning. So early 1984, the Smiths. But he's still essentially doing the same kind of interview it's already at that point. I mean, he's, so, he's, you know, simultaneously so brilliant intellectually. There's no doubt he's, he has a brilliant mind. And yet there is just something so um, unappealing about him. He's, he's, a, he's a genuine misanthrope, yeah. I think. This is appalling, but he lost me. I mean, it wasn't his race that lost me. I mean, that, that lost me. It wasn't this and that, his vile opinions. It was when he demanded that his first bloody book be issued under the Penguin Classic imprint. Hubris that, was that. That, 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 for me, was the final straw in Morris. Well, and he talks yeah. about the autobiography in progress which was with you, which is really interesting. It's a good ten years before. Absolutely. He must have been really labouring over that. <laughs> And I mean, that was the one that people liked, remember? Yeah, because the, the novel. Oh, don't, we don't even talk about the novel. But I think the first, the first bit of the autobiography, whether it was a penguin classic oh, yeah. or not, was really good, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. then the second, probably the last two thirds are just so turgid. This endless kind of uh, account of the lawsuit. Yes, yeah. Yeah. it's just unbelievable. But you look back on that interview too, and I look back on thinking of that album that he, he talked about. There, there was a real, and I can't work out quite why there was a buzz about that album, like it was a great comeback. If you look back on that album and you look, oh, at this, the is, lyrics, this is "You Are the Quarry." You are the quarry, exactly. Which was probably sold quite a few. Certainly boosted his live shows over here. And it is just moaning, mm. the, every single time. <laughs> yeah, yes, and yes. I'm not moaning in a The Queen is Dead era moaning, which <laughs> yeah. was moaning about the pain of life. It was moaning about his lawsuits and people not loving him quite enough. He's such a strange man. At this point, he's about to, or he's already in the business of curating the Meltdown Festival. So yeah. so he's not sort of persona non grata in, in the culture, which, I mean, really, he almost is now. Well, I well, I mean, the, the, well he was for he, a bit, wasn't he, he before well, then? He had been, you're mm-hmm. right, well, but he, he'd sort of been rehabilitated. Yeah. So it was around that time, that famous interview in the NME, where... He claimed that, I forget the writer concerned, had, had basically misquoted him, but yeah. he came up with some out-and-out racist mm. sort of stuff. Mm. 
there have been a lot of stuff leading up to that a song what Bengalian platforms quite right? um, a long time before. Yeah, the National Front yeah. Disco the National Front yeah. Disco a long time before uh, when he started wrapping himself in Union Jack on stage at Glastonbury and so, so uh, on and so. with all these skinheads around yeah well. the signs were there then we got on the site that interview where he's just about reggae he's just disgusting reggae is vile, it's vile. reggae yes. is vile yeah, yeah. Yeah. and how he says you can't get on the radio on top of the pops unless you're black there's all kinds of stuff, yeah. you know, right yeah. through the years. It's not like there's a one-off series. No, there's a consistent pattern. Yeah. And, I mean, he says in the interview with you, James, he says and there's no one... He doesn't, he doesn't say an awful lot that, that's really offensive, but he says there's a little little clue in there when he says there's no one to speak for the British people or something, you know, a little, little course, thing but, there, even though... even then, Nigel Farage existed back then. He was wrong. There was someone speaking for the British people. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, just, I find it... I find him extraordinary. I mean, bits of the Smiths I really liked. I just thought mm. that sonically they were fantastic. Well, I think Johnny Mara's Mara's. Yeah, you take Mara away from Morrissey, and you've just got Morrissey. Yeah, oh, no, I'm, I, yeah, I absolutely. But <laughs> some of his solo stuff is good. If you uh, the uh, greatest hits of Morrissey's solo stuff is a good record. Okay, I think. I mean, but it is noticeable that both my sons, eighteen and sixteen, both would say the Smiths are their favourite band. Yeah. And that is not my influence. No. <laughs> I would, you know, I would have pushed them elsewhere. You didn't play. <laughs> I really didn't. <laughs> you didn't play Meets Murder. In the cradle. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that, uh, um, one of them otherwise likes Kendrick Lamar and the other one likes House Bangers. Mm. So yeah. Yeah, no, for yeah. sure. There's, some, there's something there. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think as, as a singer and, a, uh, and as a writer, he had this ability to really sing directly to the people listening. Mm-hmm. The, 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 there is a very straight line. You know, I mean, you listen to his voice and the words he's singing in a way that you don't often listen to of, of the words someone's singing. You know. He was like the sort of outsider. He was the, he was the bedroom dreamer introvert who managed to turn himself into a pop star. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think that had really happened before. There had been introverts, but he was like this kind of nerdy geek who wrote letters about the New York Dolls to the music press, uh, <laughs> who somehow, you know, m- morphed into an actual star. And I, I, the Smiths were... I still think the Smiths were revolutionary uh-huh. for their moment. I think it will be interesting when Morrissey dies. I think there will be a lot of scratching your heads and it'll be difficult to really evaluate his I think it depends how long it is. How long it is, <laughs> precisely. There's actually there's quite a neat segue here because one of the publications that Morrissey sued was The Word. In 2007, I believe, there was a piece David Quantic, another writer. writers, well, I think it was wrote. just a review. It was just a review. Yeah. I don't remember exactly what the lawsuit was. Was it, was it again, sort of, Quantic had said something about his racism, essentially? Yeah. I think. I, he so did. he sued the word. I mean, I think he lost that case? Yes, the he word. He lost that I think case. they settled out of court. I don't know the exact details, but... I but it didn't, didn't sink the word at any rate. No, which, obviously, at that tell, time with magazines wouldn't have been hard. Tell us about <laughs> the word, James, because, you know, we've, we've got quite a lot of pieces by the word, now we've got quite a few of the writers from the word, and, yeah. and in a sense it was the last sort of heroic attempt to create 
a sort of thinking man's pop culture monthly, wasn't it? Yeah. And I'd just be interested in your reminiscences. I worked with, I never worked sort of cheap by jowl with David Hepworth, but I worked very closely with Mark Ellen in the early stages of Mojo and learned so much from him. I'm such a fan of his and so fond of him. And so I know, you know, we, we, we probably got our Mark Ellen tales we could tell. Tell us how you remember working on the word and what the atmosphere was like on, on, on that. Well, for me, it was undoubt- It was absolutely a dream come true. I, st- yeah. I, I mean, I look back and think, wow, I can't believe I did that because I was smash hits yeah. under Hepworth and Ellen. I was early Q. They were the greatest magazines that had ever been created, in my view. Possibly early Q, still edges the word, putting for sale of my part, because I remained a fan of the word even while I was writing for it. I just think he, Mark Ellen, is a great editor yeah. I mean not just on a personal level that's kind of irrelevant how he, he treats his staff incredibly well and his writers but he is open minded in a way that which remarkably you sort of would think is a, a really obvious thing to be yeah. but isn't yeah. he will fight against his own prejudices to yes. a large extent and that, as we all know that gets more difficult as you get older but he managed to retain that mm-hmm. I thought brilliantly and then David Hepworth also pretty mighty and they also had Andrew Harrison let's not forget absolutely. who was editor of Select Super when it was guy. a supreme yeah. magazine yeah absolutely and has done you know did so it's a real hothouse of talent wasn't yeah. it I mean and, and and fun small, people to work yeah, and mm. later on Kate Mossman yeah. who is now a brilliant writer I think, absolutely I mean, really brilliant writer yeah. but I got hired because I finally you know I just bombarded them <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, the old-fashioned route. It was, totally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it wasn't I, any of them. It was Rob Fitzpatrick, who was a sort of commissioning editor. Again, a really good writer. I just adored the magazine. I mean, I, I remember, the, I think the first issue had Nick Cave on the cover, one, you know, mm. who is one of my heroes. Yeah, unlike, and inside, unlike Q with Paul McCartney. So that was yeah, a statement. That it, was it was. Nick, Nick Cave and, and, and not I just Paul thought, McCartney. Yeah. And then Inside had a sort of two-page feature about a book about the Krakatoa explosion, I yeah. thought. These are still my people. Yes, yes, so, yes. Yeah, and it gave me a chance to write a lot about music. And what they did was, and Mark and I think it's just said this up front, was they were looking for stories. Mm. So it wasn't just someone with a new record. Yeah. It was, is there a story here? Mm. I mean, so, maybe the cover star, mm. you go, you, if you get the chance to talk to Elton John, you talk to Elton John, yeah. regardless. But everything else needed an angle and a story. And yes, and that was what kept it, for me, really great. Absolutely. I wanted to sort of segue really from that into one of the pieces that we've selected is a review of a book about the Wrecking Crew. Oh, yeah. We've just lost Hal Blaine, one of the greatest session drummers of all time. And in your review, you say that, that Hal Blaine is kind of the secret hero of this book. So I just want to talk briefly about Hal Blaine. For those of you who don't know, I mean, Hal Blaine, when you hear the opening drum riff, as it were, of Be My Baby by the Ronettes, that's... That's Hal yeah. Blaine, and he played on Good Vibrations, he played on Bridge Over Troubled Water. Simon Price found a list of the the hit songs that he had played on, and it's it's basically two-thirds of American pop in the 1960s. <laughs> yes. It's astonishing. Yes. I mean, it is absolutely So, James, tell, tell well, us I've just got, a little bit got, about Hal. I looked at that list, possibly that list, another one, and I just looked at the A's, and they're four of my favourite songs of all time. And, yeah. and not just that, 
a lot of that is down to the drumming. Hazy Shade of Winter, Taste of Honey by Herb Alpert. Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. Uh, <laughs> Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In, and A Little Less Conversation, which of, if you wanted to choose an Elvis Presley song for the drumming, that might that well would be, be it. it, wouldn't it? Yes, yes, of course. Totally, I mean, he was, he was kind of groovy. Yes. Yeah. Wasn't he? Yes. Yep. And that's probably the jazz thing. They were all jazzers, weren't they? Yeah. I, I, a lot of them the, had the, the, jazz chops. They were all mix. I mean, I mean you got people like Carol Kay, who really didn't have a jazz background. Or Leon uh, Russell. Uh, or Leon Russell. Oh, yeah. and, and in a way, the beauty of that band is the way they could actually mix these different parts. You'd have, let's say, three guitarists, and you often had three or four guitarists in a Wrecking Crew session. Two of them be jazzers, one be an acoustic kind of folky, and the other be a country picker, for mm. example. And somehow melding all that was, and that's where mm. people like Phil Spector's producers are so good at using these guys and putting them together. Yes. I think the Wrecking Crew are marvellous as a group of personalities. You, you know, I, I, there's, luckily there's a, quite a lot of documentary footage of them in action, sort yep. of stuff. There's a great, um, do, there's a documentary about them, Hal Blaine basically complaining that he'd lost all his money to successive wives. <laughs> uh, he, he, he was absolutely on his uppers in like, the late yeah. 90s or early, early 2000s because every penny he'd owned had gone to about four ex-wives. <laughs> I think it's probably one of the pitfalls of being an elite session man is that you are in the studio sort of all day and some of the night and, and you, you never see your, your family or wife <laughs> so you go through wives quite quickly but probably. I interviewed quite a few of them a lot of the British ones actually and most of them said that they did it because they didn't want to go on tour that's right so you'd have thought you could probably hold down at least yeah one of your three yeah, marriages also it's got, you remember most session players weren't didn't work nights is that session players yeah, tend to be right. daytime sessions yeah you know it'd be three hours in the morning three hours in the afternoon yes. you know uh, and, and also just just to make quite clear this wasn't just a boys club you know we i think we probably did already mention carol k who was the main bass player Yep. in the Wrecking Crew and anomaly in, in any kind of recording yep. scene Absolutely. at that time but I don't know how many dates mm. she yep. and Hal Blaine yeah. did together but there must have been but you also, a good number you also mentioned Earl Palmer this is a largely white but not entirely white band as well you yes. know at a time when there was pretty strict segregation even in the studios and yeah. so on and so mm. forth no, great, great, great drummer. So this is just saying goodbye to Hal Blaine, one of, one of the absolute great drummers in mm-hmm. Session Men. We can talk about another Session Man here because this takes us into the week's free feature on the homepage, which is about Lamb Chop. So we go from Hal Blaine to Charlie McCoy. I've included your interview with Charlie McCoy, who guests on the forthcoming Lamb Chop album. Now, Charlie McCoy is he's not the sort of Nashville equivalent of Hal Blaine. Probably he, didn't, he wasn't a drummer. but He was everything he's, else. Though. He's sort of everything else, wasn't <laughs> yeah. he? And when you think of the great American Session Man, you, you, you think of Hal Blaine, you think of Charlie McCoy. So you interviewed Charlie McCoy, and so tell us a little bit about who, who he was, who he is. Well, for me, I mean, I got slightly obsessed with Charlie McCoy because of, he played bass on John Wesley Harding. He certainly did. Which is just the most amazing playing, him and the drummer Kenny Buckley. Kenny Buckley. And they had both played on Blonde on Blonde, more famously, in Nashville with Bob Dylan. And Charlie McCoy, in fact, led that session, and it, it, that was the joy of talking to him because he was the most down-to-earth guy and he just said that Bob Dylan just there was no dialogue no 
he just didn't say anything. And, it, and, and Charlie McCoy said he, could, he would go up and ask him, do you like this arrangement that we put together? And he would say, I don't know. Do you like it? <laughs> uh, I mean, there are famous stories, aren't there, about, about uh, almost the first session that Dylan did in Nashville for Blonde and Blonde, I think, was Rainy Day Women. And so all these quite straight-laced yeah, yeah. Nashville guys were being asked to sort of play instruments that they never normally played. And yeah. I, th- I think that Charlie simultaneously played bass and trombone. That's, that's the actually, story. I did ask him. He you claims that's him. a lie. It's a lie. Isn't that that's a great a tragedy? Lie. But they certainly <clears throat> were doing wacky things that no one well, had ever I think asked they them were, to do before. The, the idea was that Bob Dylan and Al Cooper had come down from the city yes. and livened them up with some, you know, brought, brought the beatnik freedom... To, to uh, uptight Nashville, it, it, how much that's true? Well, I, I'm, I'm slightly sceptical, and actually, kind of musicians are musicians wherever they are, and they enjoy doing interesting stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, my very brief music career worked with some Nashville players and Muscle Shoals, and they would cheerfully do the 95 Bob Ray playing the People's Bass Line, Route 5, Route 5, but present with something interesting, and they come to it, they bring something to the table, you know. I'm sure they would have probably been pretty thrilled doing those Bob Dylan sessions. Yeah, I I have no doubt about that. Well, they they were Nashville cats, weren't they? They were were the younger guys. They weren't the Uh, sort of uh, Pig uh, Robbins generation. They were were slightly younger. Yeah, but even the Pig Robbins generation are interesting. I mean, you you, you know, you've got um, some really great guitar players and so on who would then go out on the road with Willie Nelson and and play almost psychedelic country Mm. jamming sort of stuff. Um, um, and of course, uh, Area Code Six One Five was McCoy's band, wasn't it? Yeah. And for a lot of English listeners, the old Grew Whistle Test theme, theme is Stone Fox Chase. Stone Fox Chase. That's yeah, him on exactly. harmonica on, on that. He's a brilliant musician. I, mean, I quite agree. I think the playing on John Wesley Harding. I mean, I'm I'm but less of a fan of Blonde on Blonde. Funnily enough, I love John Wesley Harding. And I really love Nashville Skyline, mm. and I love the way that McCoy and Bushy played together yeah. for, with Dylan and, and elsewhere. Because yeah. Bushy plays with Neil Young on Harvest as well. And I mean, they're just terrific. I think they both did uh, Simon and Garfunkel. I know Charlie McCoy did. Okay, yeah, yeah. Which, in a sense, going back to yeah. what we we're just saying, is that the, as musicians, it's, it's wrong to just categorise them as, yeah. as Nashville studio cats with no sort of sense of the musical world outside of no. them because they clearly did. Well, but, Charlie McCoy did loads of stuff in France too. Did he? Yeah, I mean, he went off and did Eddie Mitchell. Eddie Mitchell? Uh, Eddie Mitchell. Yeah, I he mean, did all the rock and roll yeah. because Eddie Mitchell would have thought they were the great. I mean, you imagine the reception you'd have got in Paris if you came from Nashville. I mean, presumably it was pretty nice. Yeah. People to not just take you for granted. And better food. Much, much better food. Yeah. Well, and, and so it makes sense <laughs> in a way that, that Charlie McCoy, I mean, I, it's surprising how long it's taken lamb chop to get Charlie McCoy to play how old on an he, album. How old were you? Well, now? he was 70 when you interviewed him. So he's, um, so he's now, he's got to be 75, 6. Uh-huh. But he can yeah. still play and clearly... He can still uh, blow. I mean, that yeah. might be harder, mightn't it? Mm. Well, so anyway, he's on exactly how, how much he plays on the new lamb chop album, I don't know. But lamb chop are, in this context, an interesting group from Nashville yeah, aren't they or absolutely. they're not just from Nashville but uh, I know you've interviewed them I interviewed them around the same time I, I noticed think. Yes, when, you went yeah I actually went and actually album. hung out properly sort yeah. of hung out for a couple of days with with Kurt Wagner and and the entire pretty much the entire ensemble at that point I even saw them kind of doing some rehearsing 
I can't sort of claim lamb chop. I'm a sort of fanatical lamb chop supporter, but but I really I I do find them really interesting mm. and affecting and i love the nixon album i mean that that still to me stands as a great record i love Agreed. up with people i love the old gold shoe i mean I, I thought they came as close to realizing kurt's sort of vision of, of of this sort of modern country soul kind of sound i mean can what what, what was your take on them at that time with them i think i think it probably when i look back i think it probably comes from the dylan bastardization country music bastardization i don't like straight country music as much as i like yeah sort of bastard forms of it like that and i i just adored actually the album just before that was, was whatever it, and one another whatever, man's spells, another man's spells, and yeah. then nixon came and i just thought this is astonishing and they were such a thing live i mean yeah. my wife and i went to every and they came over here loads. They certainly they, did. They could get well, they venues. were bigger in Europe yeah. ultimately than yeah. they were in America, even though they were part of that kind of you know alt country Americana thing. Clearly, but their their music is very different from I don't know, like the Jayhawks or Will or something. Yeah. I mean, they are they're very. I mean, he's a very literate yeah. writer, Wagner. He's a very interesting man. I really liked him. I love the sort of melancholy mm. of the music. That's what we have on Lamb Shop. We've got a we've got a piece by Gavin Martin from 2000. So Nixon, I think, has just come out at that point. There's a later piece where he's talking about life-threatening illness, and there's your Charlie McCoy piece. Thanks for for chipping in with 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 some stuff on Lamb Chop. So at this point, we're going to hear about the week's audio interview, Mark. Yeah, it's the 77 Cliff White interview with the fairly wonderful Minnie Ripperton. I think. Huge star for me and acquired taste, but she comes over wonderfully in this, this interview. She had had a mastectomy in 1976, uh, breast yes. cancer, which eventually killed her in 79. She talks at some length about that. The first clip we're going to play is her talking about precisely that, about how she'd gone to the White House the, the, the week before the interview took place for Jimmy Carter to give her uh, the An American award. Cancer Association Award. It's fascinating stuff. I was at the White House Monday, and I met, uh, I was given an, an award, and uh, it was really funny, because, I mean, it's like, like... Why did they give you that award? It was, I know you've, you know, you've had a mastectomy, and well, that's after a year of illness... Well, because I've, I've talked about it, I've been on television talking about it, and there's been articles written about it in, uh, in magazines, yeah. and I talked very frankly about it, because I know women just don't do that. It's because when I had my mastectomy, they wanted me to join some little hidden group to, to talk about how bad I felt. I start, you know, I feel bad, but that's not, I don't feel bad because of that. I feel bad because of a lot of reasons. My hormones are freaking out and as well as, you know, what's happened to me. It's not the fact that I'm a woman who's lost a breast and uh, yeah. I'm ruined for life. I mean, if I had to have both breasts and my arms off, I would be alive, you know, and that's what mattered more, you know, to me. And a lot of women were sort of like really hiding behind that and not really understanding. So I thought, you know, like when it, the time came that it would be right for me 
to talk about it because being a young woman, being a woman in the public eye, and uh, I think that would have a that would help a lot of people, a lot of women as, yeah. as well as men too. You That's know? right. It's straight out there. I mean, because like women worry about whether or not a guy's gonna like them because they have one breast or no breast. If that's, I mean, breasts are for, for uh, feeding children in the first place. She came over as an enormously likable, intelligent, interesting woman. She sets these both two or three interviews straight, because Cliff's not the only person in the room. Where they trying to put her into the, like, you started in the church sort of stuff. She said, no, she mm. basically starts off on the stage. She wants to be an actress, she was in musicals and so on and so forth, as a student in Beyonce. So her background is very different from a lot of R&B singers mm. in, in that respect. She also talks about her songwriting, everyone forgets, that she actually co-wrote virtually all of her, mm. her material. She, she, she comes over as a delight, really. She really does. I mean, I found myself uh, thinking what Maya Rudolph, her daughter, would would think or feel listening to mm -hmm. this. I think Maya was only like six or something when Minnie died. So tragically, I mean, 31 years old, this, this, was, this was very young. And of course, it is startling to hear a woman talking about mastectomy yep. in, in 1977. Absolutely. I mean, it, it just wasn't sort of done. And I think quite apart from her musical achievements, I think she does deserve huge acclaim for just being brave enough and thoughtful enough to say, do you know, this is something that needs to be talked about. I could actually yep. help someone who is unable yep. to talk about yep. these issues. I mean, you know, she also, you know, she does talk about her music as well, about, you know, her, how she works with the Rangers, the difference between working in the studio and going on the road and so on and so forth. I mean, she is a musician mm. and it's, it, we mustn't let, the, no. the, the mastectomy get in, the, in front of the fact that she's primarily, it's not just a singer, but a musician, a songwriter, and so on and so forth. It's really good. And you've alluded to the fact that she didn't come in the usual way right. via sort of the church. Yeah. There was none of that. And I think actually uh, how she got to her huge, huge hit, Loving You, I think it was 75, mm -hmm. which was number one in America and, and, and sort of in various territories yeah. in the world. Big so hit, that, yeah, yeah. that's the hit that people kind of remember where she goes up into this sort of freakishly high whistle register, yeah. as it's called. It's actually in the interview, she briefly does it. She's sort of saying about how other singers have, have glommed onto her thing and sort of impersonating. She goes, she's there all going, and suddenly hits this high note. And, <laughs> yeah. just kind of and then a note that only, only dogs can hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, her, her way in is actually... Really interesting from, from from my point of view because she was she was in a, a, a sort of girl group called the Gems first off, but where she comes into the story of Chicago soul music is via this extraordinary group Rotary Connection, which was a sort of chess project dreamed mm. up by Marshall Chess, the sort of Rolling Stones crony, who's <laughs> the son of Leonard Chess. He he wanted to try and create a kind of psychedelic sort of soul rock group. So that it, he wasn't just working with old blues artists and Fontella yeah, Bass yeah. and so forth. She was a receptionist, I believe, at Chess, and she sang backing vocals on, I think, things like 
rescue me. So she's she was sort of part of the chess oh, family. Right. And then that. they put together this band, Rotary Connection, with with a, a brilliant classically trained arranger slash producer guy called Charles Stepney, who also played a huge part in Earth, Wind and Fire. Yeah. And so Rotary Connection, there are there are actually I think four or five, maybe even six albums yeah. they did on one of Chess's labels. They are pretty extraordinary. I mean, they're sort of way beyond. If you, it's like soul, but filtered through, you know, Burt Backrack, Jimmy yeah, Webb. Yeah. It can be very bombastic and overdone at points, but it's brilliant. There's some real balearic favourites come out of. I am the black gold. I mean, I think I am the black gold of the sun. Is, is actually just one of the greatest records yeah, ever made. Yeah. It's quite. I, I mean, that, that's a conversation. And she's the main. Yeah, it's a com- singer conversation for another day. But when you think of chess records, you think of blues. Yeah, and actually, chess records are whole lot more than that, particularly in the 60s when they were trying to branch out. Ramsey Lewis was actually their major hit maker in the 60s. He sold more records than any of the blues artists combined. That, as you said earlier, that essentially what became Earth, Wind and Fire came out of the, the chess studios. Yes. There was a chess house, one of the chess house bands, yes. uh, to all intents and purposes, at least the core trio that started Earth, Wind yep, and Fire. Um, so chess records, I'm afraid they were in the end, incompetently run, mostly by Marshall, who proved to be a disaster as a businessman. But he was hanging out too much with yeah, the Rolling Stones, that, essentially, and that, that'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, and ended but, up, of course, yeah. uh, running Rolling yeah. Stones records. Uh, but but you know, there's all kinds of interesting connections. You know, you said Fontella Bass. Well, her musical director was Lester Bowie, who was of the Art Ensemble of Chicago. Yeah. Fontella Bass then went and joined, effectively, the Art Ensemble of Chicago yeah, and yeah. became part of their wider family. Mm. Very interesting Chicago scene. There's a new book coming out quite soon by a guy called Aaron Cohen, who he wrote the third. 33 and a third book on Amazing Grace, oh, right. the Aretha yeah, album. Yeah, yeah. So he's written a book about Chicago soul and black politics in that era. Wow, must, must get that. Uh, which I think will mm, be will yeah, be really yeah. interesting. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, for me, it was lovely listening to Minnie Ripperton. I thought this is this is a really admirable woman who talks a lot of sense yeah. about relationships and life, and she just sounds like she's really got her head screwed. Yeah, on yeah. And was just a huge loss yeah, to, yeah. to to soul yeah. music to American music. I, I just liked her listening to her. Yeah, I just liked her. Yeah, she. Yeah. she you you cannot dislike this yeah. woman. She's she's amazing. So that's that's for subscribers this week. Uh, tell us about some of the highlights for the, the pieces that have gone to the library. <laughs> well, briefly in 1962, Rolf Harris being interviewed by Peter Jones, Record Mirror, talking about Sunrise and about the didgeridoo and the wobble board. I mean, Rolf Harris. I mean, I, as a child growing up, I, I was kind of six or eight when he was having his hit records and you know you heard them all the time he was just part of our musical landscape didn't sound like anyone else you know and now of course he's the disgrace he's yet another disgrace I interviewed him about two years before did you? you? yeah for the word oh Oh, do tell nothing to tell nothing to tell oh Rolf Harris was still the beloved entertainer yeah right yeah and painter I mean I I went to art school and also the country's most famous painter yeah yeah. I mean (laughs) I I I was one of a generation who went to to art went to art school in a sense inspired by the sight of this man actually making a picture in front of you on live television don't underestimate it and you'd be like kangaroo yeah. bush wall you know didgeridoo you know and, and, and it was it was it was transfixing you know yeah. so, so it's it, yeah. it's it's just dismal you, you know. did you like him i thought he was a little bit 
sharp actually. Uh-huh. Yeah. And a little bit no I didn't actually. I didn't okay. find him warm at all. That's we approved. Unlike Morrissey, Unlike who Morrissey. I did like. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to seventy three, Ian McDonald on the phone to Alan Osmond. The Osmonds had just released um, a, a more specifically religious record than anything they'd done before. By 73, their star was already waning, wasn't it? Their, their big sort of 70, 71, 72. Crazy Horses was 71, was it, or 72? 72, I think. So, anyway, so uh, Alan Osmond is coming, is coming out with stuff that he says, so many young people today think that marriage is not important, that living together is where it's at. Wrong. <laughs> uh, and he says, um, some people's God is money, some people's is glory. We believe in a personal God, a father, an eternal father. And so that, it, it, that's basically sort of... Because well, famously they were Mormons, weren't they? They, 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 they were. The um, famous uh, Mormon Bob, pop group. Bob Ray, the bass player, as I say, he played One Bad Apple. It's recorded mm. yes. Rick, Rick Hall's famous Best record the Osmonds ever made. And he said, you know, he, he, was, he was the, the session, he was the bass player, the one after David Hood, after David Hood and all that, and moved off and set up Muscle Shoals. He said he turned up to the studio one day all these people there wearing suits. No one was taking drugs like these because they all lived on speed in the studio in those days. You think all well, that laid-back Southern Soul was made by people on amphetamine. <laughs> but, and he said, all of this stuff was going on. They, they cut the track, you know, the usual three-hour session. And then two weeks later, he was driving up to his parents in Wisconsin and turned on the radio, and every station was playing this bloody record. Yeah. It just played yeah. on. Seventy-five, really interesting interview with Johnny Nash, who's a sort of forgotten character, but he had some really huge hits. A black American came out of the church, the classic sort of route, but as he himself in the interview says, that he never listened to R&B, he was like Billy Eckstein and that sort of stuff, you know, sort of uptown music, and had a career as a sort of supper club crooner. And then sort of discovered reggae sure. and had a, a whole string of really substantial hits and he was probably the first person to internationally put Bob Marley on the map because well, yeah, Marley was well. writing songs but for absolutely. Johnny wasn't he as early as probably 7071 that's right and actually I think Mar- I see Marley at one, at one point was living in Scandinavia and writing songs that's right and Johnny Nash was working out of England a lot at the time exactly so it's a very very peculiar story it's not the standard either reggae or R&B no, no, story completely. he comes over Really nicely in this interview, you know, a bright guy. And he also, he, he had his own labels and things like that. He was a, he was a pioneering sort of self-releasing R&B artist. Right. He says, I wrote, I produced, I took the records around to the DJs. Paola, it's a fact of life, man. You know, he's been through the mill. But anyway, it's a very interesting yeah. interview. Robert Duncan reviewing Ted Nugent and Cream. One of our favourites. And what Robert Duncan does a lot in his writing is adopt the persona of Someone, you know, in this case, it's a guy who likes Ted Nugent, even when he <laughs> kid despises it. And so he says, you know, if you still want to listen to Kiss and Aerosmith, it's a free country fella, and there ain't no law against mama's boys yet. And that's, that's actually the last sentence in the review. It's very, very amusing. 79, Dave McCullough, it's the first piece we posted on. We can't track him down. If anyone knows of his existence, let us know. In the meantime, we are going to run some of his work, and this is a a pretty early Scritty Politi interview from January 79. No quotes from it, but it's, 
you went to that squat, didn't you, Barney? Well, I went to somewhere in Camden, whether they were squatting there or not, but I did do an NME cover story yeah. in about 1981. They uh, may well still have been there, because it was around, it was, just, it was after 81, they started making enough money to leave the squat. Yeah, the Swedish Girl had come out at that yeah. point. Yeah. And but they, I, they, they were still a rough trade band. It was still, you know, this, this is, I mean, Green is clearly the leader of the band. Uh, the other two guys are sort of adjuncts. They go to the pub to get away from the freezing cold conditions in the squat. They're talking about Skank Bologna, they're talking about DIY. Now, they weren't genuine pioneers of the DIY buzzcocks with that, but they were certainly one of the first people to promote the idea that you can make your records and so on. I believe on Skank Bologna they had the how to do your own DIY record instructions of what it would cost to press up 500 copies and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. So I saw them about two or three times around that time. They were always playing the Ackland Hall it was always miserable. Everyone had a cold. Everyone was wearing raincoats. The raincoats were usually supporting them. They defined a particularly intellectual brand of post-punk yep. because he he was steeped in all this kind yep. of structuralist and postmodernist writing. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I love Ian Pemmon to death as a writer, but my idea of hell is reading a three-thousand-word <laughs> interview with Green because I would not understand a word they're saying unless you've got a degree in comparative French modern. I French think that's where literature. I learned the word situationist. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's just tropey. It's a modern tropey, isn't it, now, that essentially what, not killed the NME, but what meant that they lost... A lot of readers. Was, was sort of, that would be it. It was like Ian Pemmelon's Gritty Politi. Uh, yeah. Minus 100,000 viewers. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. But yeah. They, agree, they, they kind of reinvented themselves as very glossy Absolutely. ABC, didn't well, they? I mean, I really... Very much so. I still... Because I, I don't know the story behind that. I, really, d- I really disliked early Gritty Politi, but they only gigs I could afford to go to were at the Ackland Hall and they were always playing and they were miserable and then they produced this song The Sweetest Girl which is one of the most beautiful records I've ever heard in my life yeah and Cupid Psyche later. Uh, yeah. Yes, uh, and, and yeah. then, then, Very he, then he leapt uptown. You know, he started yeah. working with Arif Mardin and people like Completely. that. Suddenly the whole thing changed. But it was still done in a kind of almost cerebral way. Yes, it was lyrics, like a game. With lyrics. Get a Synclavia. Yeah, yeah. L- lyrics which refer to Bath yeah. and so on and so forth. You know, it was, it was all. Anyway, it's, 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 a, it's a good long interview. The Carl Wilson, Richard Cromlin one, it's just, you know, it's about his, uh, from 81 LA Times, Carl released his only solo album, I believe. Oh, no, I think there were, was more than one, okay. but that was probably the first. Um, and he talks a bit about the band. Uh, my role in the Beach Boys is to kind of hold a focus on the guys, to keep a balance. We've had our differences, that's for sure. It turns out they're all living in different parts of the country. Basically, they, they, all, hate they all hate each other. He was the best singer in the yeah. Beach Boys by a long way, and I and I what think wonderful one of the great pop singers. Yeah. And also, it seems the nicest of the Beach Boys. Are you a Beach Boys fan? Not huge. I bet some Bob's. Yeah, yeah. yeah but only the ones with Hal Blaine playing. Yeah, I, like the, I seem to like the ones where the session musicians sing, like yeah. Darling, and things like that. Yeah. But no, I think that I think he he comes across as being. Yeah. The least the, offensive. The same one. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. Dennis and Brian. I mean, damage like they all were. I think. Mm-hmm. I think Carl, as the baby brother, kind of got away the lightest. I mean, Dennis was literally being beaten up by his dad and then beating up his dad, sort of relentlessly. Yeah. Brian was the sort of terrified introvert. I think Carl somehow managed to escape the worst of mm. the abuse. Um, May eighty-three. Charlie Murray's. Charles Shaw Murray's. Obituary of Muddy Waters, we're talking about Chessman, Muddy Waters' obituary. It's a very fine, very generous tribute to a man who 
Charlie Murray clearly worshipped, as did many of us. I was very lucky to have seen Muddy live about three or four times in, in my life, and one of the shows certainly was one of the most magical things I've ever seen, closing the show at the Capital Jazz Festival in, on mm. Alexandra Palace, which I think was 81, only a couple of years before. Right. It's a very, very good, very, very generous tribute to a giant with, without whom so much of rock and roll as we recognise it wouldn't have, simply wouldn't have happened, there's yeah. no doubt about it. And Charlie being the sort of great authority yeah. in terms of the enemy writers yeah. on those original Delta and Chicago yeah. blues masters. Uh, it, it also points out that, that Muddy actually had a marvellous Indian summer of a career when Johnny Winter yeah. started working with him mm. and they recorded the marvellous Hard Again album yeah. the live album there's another one joining them to produce well but Hard Again for me was, was astonishing yes. because Muddy had been making a, some pretty indifferent records insofar as he'd been making records at all which he really hadn't been much and then this record comes out and it just leaps out of the speed it's hard again it's hard again it really is mm. fantastic record mm. Eighty-five. David Byrne being interviewed by Jeffrey Himes about the Talking Heads movie Stop Making Sense. I love the movie. I, it, I, I don't like many movies about rock and roll. And mm. It's it's one of the few. Which, and he sort of explains why because they constructed this show, and then thought, right, this we we can't do this the next time we tour. We, mm. we want to document this. So he got in touch with Jonathan Demi. Yeah, and then they worked on it together. And he talks about his own performance. He says, I can't dance like Michael Jackson, so I don't try. I'm trying to invent my own style to accentuate the things I can do that he can't do. <laughs> like wear giant padded white suits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the last from me is a huge, like 7,000 word interview with Madonna by the very, very splendid Barbara Ellen for The Enemy in 95. And there's two things here. First of all, there's Barbara Ellen's own writing, which I think is terrific. She writes, In Madonna's New York sitting room, gothic grandeur and homely comfort merged to disconcerting effect, as if it had been designed with both Roman Polanski and the Partridge family in mind. On one wall, there's a signed photograph of the young, beautiful Muhammad Ali standing victoriously over a defeated, anonymous opponent. On the other walls, there are paintings, one of which is probably a Picasso. Who else had a habit of painting women with their noses on backwards? <laughs> So, I mean, I, I love Barbara's writing. I think she, she's a real stylist. But I, you know, I came out of it kind of rather liking Madonna, which isn't the first thing which necessarily... No, you said that, that she's much funnier in she's this funny, than she, 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 she sometimes very, seems to be. Yeah, and, and, and she's, 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 she's got a, a very she's good... splendidly rude about Courtney Love. Oh, yes, yes, it's, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Courtney is not anti-establishment at all. She's got her Charles Jordan shoes on. She goes shopping at Prada. It's all bullshit, but it sounds good. Basically, she tried to sign Courtney to her label, Maverick, the whole to label Maverick. And one moment, apparently Courtney's on the phone at three in the morning, sort of like saying, let's stick it to the men and all sort of stuff. And the next moment, Courtney's slagging her off in the press saying she wanted to make Courtney her slave. And this sort of, you know. Um, so what era is this? This, this is 95. Is that um, music? 95, it's, it's pre-Ray of Light. Yes, yeah. yes, it is. Because I'm wondering how the enemy got her. It's weird that the enemy would want her well, well, it, it, That, I mean, that's the thing, I was going through the, the Very bound 90s, volume, yeah. and suddenly this thing jumped yeah. out. Um, and also the fact that Barbara had that much access. Yeah. To do a 7,000-word interview means she would have been messing with her for like two, three hours, mm. maybe more. Mm. 
I think that's probably Madonna wanting to be recognised by the music press again. Yeah. She talks quite yes. a lot about being taken seriously as an artist. She's aware, and she talks about this at great length, she's aware that her self-acknowledged exhibitionism leads people to not take her seriously as a musician and as a, and as a performer. So uh, I suspect it's about reclaiming some of that space, that critical space that she feels that she's lost with the sex book, with the erotica album, yeah. which didn't go down very well, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, Madonna's a very clever, very interesting woman. She knows her stuff, and so she knows what she's doing. She, this interview didn't happen by accident, I mean, which is, in a sense, what, what yeah. you're saying. but it um, feels like the select, the, the, the influence of the select indie pop crossover like they would put Kylie Minogue on the cover uh, yeah. around this time I suspect that's very what enemy following that yes except Madonna's just big enough to almost still big enough to almost kind of go beyond that you know yes that like mm. All Saints could be on the cover of Melody Maker for example and they were you know there's, that's always been there Madonna by that time is just such a kind of huge star that for them to get a Madonna interview is just Fabulous, yeah. regardless, regardless of any sort of the time. Yeah, okay. And she's very funny. I mean, the English are so civil, but there's this whole other dark side as well. They're actually kind of very kinky and very perverted, and she breaks off grinning naughtily. I quite like that. You know, she plays with all the sort of stuff. What do we learn about Guy Ritchie? <laughs> well, I suspect I was she, she was. She had <laughs> just set up home in London, so I suspect it's around the time when she started hanging out with Guy Ritchie. But she says, "Really, well, I know sport. someone who worked on that movie, oh, and she." just went for it at a screening she saw him she met him she decided be like she is going to be mine and he was i want to be mrs ritchie and live mm. in the country with labradors how fascinating i mean she says some really sensible things saying that rock and roll is the devil's music gives rock and roll a whole lot of depth and meaning it doesn't actually have which i think is Pretty spot on thing to say. Anyway, I I, I came Lovely. out of it. Did I did I like her after reading the interview? No, but I I like the fact that you know Barbara reports her as laughing uproariously at herself and at stuff that's said and so on and so forth. Mm. You know, she's a clever, really clever, interesting, pretty interesting. Did you woman. ever interview her, Jane? No, no, God, that would be a thing, wouldn't it? <laughs> I I did. I got one interview with her right at the start of her career. First time or second time she came to London, and um, she was sort of. I kind of thought she's going to have a couple of sort of crossover dance pop mm. records, and and that's probably. It. I wasn't really impressed by the music. Had but she had a hit? Well, everybody was oh, right. the first hit, and I think it was, was it, sort it was of bub whole, uh, bubbling whole. under the, the sort of top third. So she hadn't worked with Nile Rodgers or anything at that point. This is 1983. Uh, Holiday and all that sort of stuff. Pre-Holiday. Pre so yeah. there was only, there was just the single, Everybody, uh. come out, produced by Mark Kamins, or Kamins, and I just remember being quite taken aback by how unbelievably ambitious she seemed yeah. she was just there was no vulnerability that there at all that I'm going to be a huge star and this and actually was and I mean you know that I couldn't say that I liked her very much I found her quite quite intimidating even as just this kind of young girl she was quite quite intimidating as a teenager I think that was part of the attraction yeah <laughs> yes I didn't probably I, I didn't care about liking her she, the, the being fear and in awe yeah. or it was almost awe yeah I, I, so we were talking about her in the office yesterday I, a long time ago I was commissioned to produce bits of music for uh, CD-ROMs back when CD-ROMs were a thing by News Multimedia and um, Rupert Murdoch's organisation and one of the things was to produce something which sounded like Madonna without Madonna 
And so I really, I got the immaculate collection. I sat and really just took, took that stuff to pieces, houses stuff constructed, and constructed something which sounds like a, tra- a track. And I realized that if you take Madonna out of those tracks, they are nothing. Yeah. You know, yes, you work with good producers, Nile Rogers, etc. But what makes her stuff work is her. Very specifically her. It's her, she's not a great singer, it's her personality Mm. that she imposes on everything that she did. I mean, you listen to things like Like a Virgin and all that. The actual track is a kind of an ancient R and B. An end to the groove is the most boring. Yeah. Well, I mean, whether they're boring or not. No, I mean, I love it. Yeah. But by itself, the drum beat is good. It's what it is. It's her. It's all her, you know. Uh, And I don't think. And people appreciate that enough, yeah. actually. I think we're all out of time, so we're going to wrap this up now. That was Madonna. Great interview by Barbara Ellen. Um, that completes our survey of what's going into Rock's Back Pages this week. Um, do check out the site. We have nearly 40,000 pieces on there and uh, over 600 audio interviews. So have a browse, have a look around. I'd like to thank James Med very much for coming in and being part of this today thank you James and we're going to go out Mark with another clip from the wonderful Minnie Ripperton this is really about her optimism about the future our future our collective future you know did she know she was going to die at this point she may have she may have already known her time was you know that's a good question in those days Mm. cancer was once it got to a certain point was you know very hard to treat and she just she just tells us about how we've got to enjoy ourselves and you know and, and be positive. And on that happy note, we'll say goodbye. We'll say goodbye. <laughs> Here's Minnie. <laughs> enjoy ourselves. I don't think it's supposed to be a heavy struggle living here, I mean, on this planet, because it's just too much to enjoy. There's too much beauty around us, is is on the planet. I mean, there's nothing on this planet that's imported from any place else. And look at all the incredible stuff that's here. And uh, the beauty that that art and people and and just the the beauty of the planet brings you. It's just... People are so involved in what color someone is and what religion it is. Yeah. And about 5,000 years from now, when everybody's mixed with everything and there's no such thing as this or that, then what? Yeah. You know, it won't even matter. Loving you, I see your soul come shining through. And every time that we, ooh, I'm more in love with you. That was Minnie Ripperton in conversation with Cliff White in 1977, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest James Med, who joined hosts Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle. The podcast was produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Mm-hmm.